0: Hello, I'm Max Young, and welcome to Uptown Audio News. This week includes the news team's take on the recent election, as well as how campus organizations are promoting voter turnout. In the first segment, network manager Brandon Mitchell takes a deep dive into the election results and voter trends from a UNC Charlotte political science professor. Reporter Audrey Wallace then sat down with a representative from the 49er Democracy Experience to show how integral university organizations were to influencing voter turnout. The North Carolina election was won largely by incumbents. Even though North Carolina is a swing state, a marginal majority of Republican voters have held the state in the red for decades. This week, Eric Heberlig, professor of political science and public administration, details how the deep-seated partisanship of the state shows itself across the ballot in the recent election.
1: Many people voted by party lines, which is increasingly common. But what we saw was that uh, kind of the suburbs where politics has been more shifting and shifting in favor of the Democrats, you you saw not a big shift in the suburbs in 2020 as we saw in the 2018 midterm elections. But you, you saw uh, some people there supporting both Biden and, and Cooper and then voting for Republican in the rest of the down ballot races. And even less support for Biden in the suburbs. Cooper was really the beneficiary of those Republican-leaning voters who were, were willing to vote for a Democrat, uh, but not Democrats consistently.
0: Beyond the presidential election, there was a large focus on Cal Cunningham's race against incumbent Senator Tom Tillis. Although polling well for the majority of his campaign, Cunningham's chances for election were weakened after it was reported that he had an affair.
1: Cunningham came in 20,000 votes behind Biden, which isn't much, again, considering the scandal in the the polls during the summer and early fall. uh, Cunningham was running six to eight points ahead of Biden. So, you know, arguably Cunningham wouldn't have gotten all those votes, but presumably he could have run a couple points ahead of Biden, which maybe would have put him over the top. It's not unusual in North Carolina for Democratic statewide candidates to run two to three points ahead of the presidential candidate. For example, Governor Cooper ran two to three points ahead of or actually more about four points ahead of Joe Biden. I think what the affair did was gave people who, particularly independent voters who were not happy with with Trump and or Tillis, a, a reason to to vote for Cunningham. But but then when the scandal happened, um, they said, "Well, I don't want to support somebody who who behaves like that. I, I may not like Tillis doing everything that Trump does and not standing up to Trump, but I think that's a worse crime." <laughs> than than the affairs. So Cunningham lost the ability to reach out to those type of voters who might have been willing to, to split their ticket.
0: Joe Biden is the presidential elect. Even still, he did not win in North Carolina. Donald Trump has yet to admit defeat and is claiming widespread fraud. Although these claims have been discredited by many reputable sources, Trump and much of his fan base still persists in these falsehoods. Heberlick says that this might have a damaging effect to our democracy.
1: Yeah, I think the attacks on the, the election are, are part of a, the broader trends that were going on in the United States that are reinforcing the intense level of partisanship that, that we see. If you don't trust uh, the institutions, whether it's elections or the legislature or the government, and you don't trust members of the other political party— you're not willing to split your ticket to support qualified candidates of the other political party. If you think the other party is stealing elections, <laughs> well, why, why would you you vote for them? So this pervasive distrust that members of both parties have of the other party, that they're willing to believe the worst characterizations of the other party, really, over-the-top accusations, just reinforces you know, both parties' inability to, to compromise once they're in government. So it, it's not just a matter of this election. It's a matter of the long-term viability of our ability to govern ourselves. If we don't trust one another, there's really no ability to, to come to a conversation on what the common good really is.
0: Heberlick claims that even if Trump concedes victory, he will find a way to remain in the
1: public eye. No, I, I think uh, Trumpism is the Republican Party. That his approval ratings during his term among Republicans were incredibly high, even higher than than Ronald Reagan during his presidency. And Reagan has long been thought to be the patron saint of the modern Republican Party. Likewise, Trump is is not going away. He's been the center of media focus you know, at least since the mid 1980s. Um, so he's you know incredibly gifted at uh, developing messages, at attracting media attention for himself. You know, uh, some of his critics argue that his presidency was best understood by the logic of running a reality show rather than than governing. Even if you don't accept that criticism, you know, there's no doubt that he was able to keep the media attention on himself and that he's probably not going to want that to go away. So he's going to find ways of of shifting from being commander in chief to being critic in chief and kind of hounding the, the Biden administration on whatever decisions they make. You know, he can criticize it without having any responsibility for proposing policies that would be more effective and can continue to uh, argue that um, the presidency was stolen from him illegitimately and his supporters whipped up with the fact that he should be the legitimate president rather than Joe Biden. And as we've seen over the past couple of weeks... Uh, Even Republicans in in Congress who have an an incentive in keeping the political system working effectively haven't been willing to step up and say, no, there's no credible accusations of significant fraud. We lost. Let's move on. They've continued the way they've reacted to Trump throughout his four years in office, which was let him do what he does. And maybe they'll uh, talk to him behind the scenes. Maybe they'll criticize him to one another behind the scenes, but they won't step out publicly because they know he's popular with their voters, and they have little incentive to put their necks at, at risk to to make the media happy by criticizing him. Overall, Heberleg says that
0: this election exemplified trends that have been present for years.
1: I think in, in terms of the, the, the long-term trends, I think what we saw this election was a reinforcement of what we've been seeing which was a continued polarization of, of the American public, uh, rural areas. In, in some states, Biden did better than Hillary Clinton did in 2016, but certainly didn't get back to the levels that Barack Obama had in 2008 and 2012. And likewise, Democrats won big in the, in the cities. Biden, in a number of key cities, didn't do quite as well as Hillary Clinton did, but still overwhelmingly Democratic. And what we saw in the suburbs was a, a little bit of a, a mixed bag. that They shifted uh, more towards Biden than they had in, in 2016, but it, it was kind of a personal victory for, for Biden. Those traditionally Republican voters in the suburbs voted for Biden, perhaps because they didn't like Trump's personal style or you know levels of chaos, uh, but then continued voting Republican in down-ballot races, which suggests that they're not sold on the Democrats' policy agenda, which means, all right, now Trump's out, uh, Biden's in, But Biden doesn't have the political capital or the the votes in Congress to do what he promised he he would do. And and likewise, the Democrats going forward are facing a situation where their votes are still concentrated in in urban areas that they can run up the score there, win statewide elections, but not win control of the state legislature that it takes to uh, implement the policies that they're promising to their voters. So Democrats need to figure out a way of speaking more broadly to people who live beyond the the urban cores, and Republicans need to figure out a way of broadening their coalition beyond aging white voters who, who live in rural areas as the country increasingly diversifies.
2: The 2020 election may be over, but the organizations on campus who have spent the last few months Organizing and working towards this occasion are reflecting on the goals they accomplished and analyzing their approach for the future.
3: So, my name is Tamara Johnson. I'm the Director of Engaged Scholarship in the Office of Urban Research and Community Engagement. Even before I held that position, I was in the Provost's office and was asked by the Provost to help coordinate some of the voter engagement efforts of the 49er Democracy Experience. To give you a little bit of background about that organization, it's a campus-wide coalition that was started in 2012 in response to the city of Charlotte hosting the Democratic National Convention. UNC Charlotte wanted to be a knowledge partner on all of the things that might be surrounding the the Democratic National Convention at that time, what are political conventions, what is the role that they play in in U.S. democracy, Um, what is the economic benefit or shall we say, a consequence of hosting a convention like this. And the university got involved with getting internships for students who might be interested in media or hospitality or politics or, or any range there. That initiative was coordinated by Dr. Eric Heberlig in political science and public administration, as well as Betty Doster, who is the Special Assistant to the Chancellor for constituent relations. And of course, that was 2012. And we thought, well, that's the last time Charlotte will host a political convention. It was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And so, however, of course, the university as as part of the Higher Education Act has the responsibility of making sure that students are aware of how to register to vote and those types of things. And so what we did was build off of the momentum of the 49er democracy experience to create a sort of three-pronged approach to voter engagement. That was essentially voter registration, uh, voter education, voter mobilization. And the education piece is is wide ranging so it's everything about the very fine details about how to get registered how to vote what the process is in north carolina because that process changes quite a bit to sort of civic responsibility in and, and civic education more broadly. Although in an election year, like the one we just had, heavily focused on the process, just because again, especially this year, the process was so different. And of course, mobilization is the get out the vote effort and then registration. you know Again, how do you get registered? Where should you register? Where do you think you might be? Those types of things.
2: That's Dr. Tamara Johnson, a global studies professor and the director of engaged scholarship, urban research, and community engagement. She works with the 49er Democracy Experience to provide accurate information to the student body about the process of casting your ballot.
3: That's the piece that I would love to get even more of a handle on, I think, moving forward. So, usually, again, partner with some student groups, but then year after year, because the leadership changes, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) some groups, some years are heavily involved and other years, less so. And so there's usually a student that I hire through my office to help coordinate some of those pieces. And so we've had students who have been members of SGA, or maybe they're members of a Greek organization, or maybe they're members of you know, a a political organization. And then we reach out to those organizations. And some years, some people come eagerly to the table and other years, I don't know. But SGA has been a pretty consistent partner and now has, it used to be the, the student body president would sit, In on the meetings, um, and now they've appointed like a special seat, I think, for that, for, for SGA. And the student body president has, in this year and in previous years, been instrumental in creating some of the outreach, so videos or emails or something like that. We usually do reach out to the college Democrats and the college Republicans to come. Although I think the trick sometimes is that Korean democracy experience has to be nonpartisan or bipartisan or multi-partisan. So therefore, you know, I think the students that work with us have to have a nonpartisan approach to voter engagement or civic engagement more broadly or civic education faculty have been really important to the initiative so obviously like i said dr eric has really started it and has participated throughout the years in various usually in the voter education or civic education role right so he was on a panel for the, the state of democracy event that we did for example and then of course the city of charlotte was also going to host the rnc in 2020 and then the, you know the pandemic changed the way in which that happened he before you know worked with betty doster's office to set up a different student leadership team connected to the 49 Democracy experience to create events. You know, Mary Jo Shepard was involved with those events. Mark Sanders, so Dr. Shepard as well is in poli-sci. Mark Sanders is in philosophy. Folks, again, Nicole Peterson, Dr. Peterson created some documents for her students to use that she gave permission to be widely circulated. So I think it ranges. And then we have, faculty member in psychology who had her students working on some research and logic models that will inform the work of the 49 democracy experience it ranges and we're really interested in any feedback and advice moving forward because i think so, yes, to your point, there's there's expertise, right? And And it usually tends to be sort of political expertise, like what is the role of a convention? What does this particular aspect of U.S. democracy look like? How do you move forward from there? I mean, I think... We had to say that this election highlighted some of the other things that faculty could help us address, right? So there might be issue-based expertise and analysis that, that we can bring in from faculty who want either themselves or they have students or graduate students who want to serve on a panel or create some kind of event or something like that or have their students. I mean, I think it's really exciting when students
2: get involved. The 2020 election was the center of a very complex, an ever-changing media environment that made digital literacy a key area of education for various coalitions around UNC Charlotte.
3: I think what's interesting and that what this this year in particular, because of the pandemic and because of the nature of this election in particular and the division, but then also the division in the ways in which people get information When I grew up to go there, right? Or as a young child in the 80s, like people really got their information from like the newspaper or like three TV stations, right? The the night news, like it was on at six or whatever time. and, And, you know, my parents watched it and we had to watch it. And so that's just not the case anymore, right? And so people are getting information, good or bad, right? From a wide variety of sources. And that means that there's such a wide variety of realities created through that information dissemination, if that makes sense. And so I think that really came up this year. It's come up in the past, but this year particularly. And then, of course, the pandemic changed the way a lot of people voted or engaged, right? But then there was a lot of really interesting work and conversations around, you know, how do you expand the electorate? What does that look like?
2: This election, the student organization had to adjust their expectations and goals. This year, different organizations and departments Work together to generate awareness about civic duty? That's a great question. I think, to be honest with you,
3: I'll speak for myself. (laughs) I think my definition of success had to shift a bit because it was such a bizarre year. And I think we'll find out how bizarre you know, hopefully we'll, I'd be able to look back on this year, years from now. <laughs> anyway, um, so I think initially I was thinking if we could increase our voter turnout for the campus, that would be a measurable goal. And if we could diversify the ways in which we disseminate information, that would be, I would consider that a win. And I think that we did the latter. I think that we leaned more heavily on, we had to lean more heavily on social media than we've done in the past. And I think that we've been increased with the social media partners, right? So the chancellor, the provost, the vice chancellor for student affairs, the dean of students did these voter engagement videos. I think that to really open up that second prong of the three prong approach like so the the voter engagement but to really expand it beyond just voter and so i think like to talk about civic education and civic responsibility and civic engagement more broadly and what that looks like and still I, i mean i think not just at the national level but at the local level since that's where students are although now they're not just here right so they're all over and so I was actually talking to a colleague today who made a great suggestion about what we saw from this election is also a geographic divide, right? So not just the country is sort of segmented, but also this rural, urban, suburban divide.
2: Looking to the future, Johnson was hopeful that the coalitions created a bright future for civic engagement at UNC Charlotte.
3: I think the recommendation would would be really to tap into local elections as well. So we'll, you know, the city will have an election in the fall of next year. And so really to get involved there as well, it would be city- and some state elections, right? And so it's not just an every four years conversation, right? But I think it's also about, again, in addition to the civic learning piece, it's also about how do you stay connected to those folks that you voted into office, right? And so what is is the role... There, but then also what other civic entities or um, nonprofits or institutions or organizations in the city are working on some of the issues that you're working on and how they also work to hold elected officials accountable. It's democracyexperience.uncc.edu is the website. The Instagram is 49ers underscore vote. And then, of course, my email is tamarajohnson.uncc.edu. And then, as I mentioned, we have a I have a contact list. And so I usually just try to add people to the contact list so that you'll get an an invite to a meeting that you can choose to accept or ignore. But that's really where that's probably the best way to do it.
2: The 49er Democracy Experience is one part of an entire infrastructure at UNC Charlotte dedicated to increasing voter turnout among students and encouraging young people to get involved in the important process of selecting our local, state, and federal representatives. I'm Audrey Wallace, Uptown Audio News.
0: That's our show. Thanks so much for listening. Our network manager is Brandon Mitchell. Our assistant network manager is Kristen Crumpler. Our show coordinator is Audrey Wallace. My name is Max Young. Take it easy.